How you doing, everybody? The Jet Comic Podcast Network. Welcome to Sports Course, a podcast where Chicago sports broadcasting pioneer and a national legal expert get into the legal goings of sports. And now your host, Chet Kovic and Lester Munson. Welcome once again to uh, Sports Court featuring ESPN legal analyst uh, Lester Munson and yours truly, Chet Kopic, brought to you by the marvelous people at American Taxi. American Taxi is Chicago's premier suburban taxi service. Lester, you have a piece up right now on ESPN about uh, athletes and uh, special treatment. Not really all that unusual. I'll let you pick it up from there. The, I, I looked at a bunch of cases that I've covered over the last 20 years to try to figure out, do athletes get special treatment in court or do they get the same kind of capricious, crazy outcomes that all the rest of us get when we go to court? How good is the court system to begin with? How well does it handle an athlete's case? This was prompted by the Gilbert Arenas uh, sentencing in which the judge in the District of Columbia should have locked him up for three or six months and instead gave him uh, 30 days in the halfway house. And mm-hmm. uh, But as you look back on it... Uh, I'm not sure athletes get a lot of special treatment. There are some who get normal treatment, Michael Vick, Plaxico Burris, and then we think they're getting hammered. There are others who get what is probably normal treatment, and we just don't realize how easy some people get off on some of these crimes. In the case of uh, Kobe Bean Bryant in uh, Eagle, Colorado, if someone said to you he got preferential treatment, would you respond as I would respond, and that is, this girl would never have held up in court. She had loser written all over her. She did have loser written all over her, but he did get special treatment also. The the prosecutor, uh, a guy named Mark Hurlbert, and the judge there, Terry Ruckriegel, they would never be in anybody's hall of fame for prosecutors or judges. They were overwhelmed by the case, by all of us media who were there camping out around this tiny courthouse, they wanted nothing to do with a big case. And they tried to figure out how can we get rid of this, and they drove the young woman out of the case with a series of rulings that were highly questionable. She she had her problems, but if, uh, if Kobe Bryant is ever arrested again for this, I'm not going to be surprised. My friend, uh, this goes back 18 years to a time when uh, you and I first became pals. You were covering the uh, Mike Tyson uh, sexual assault trial involving Desiree Washington down in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, Mark Garrison, who was the uh, prosecutor in that trial, just absolutely tarred and feathered. Vincent Fuller, who was uh, Mike Tyson's legal uh, defender. I mean, once again, and we've talked about this previously, have you ever seen a more miserable defense presented in court? No. Vincent Fuller had six lawyers helping him. They all showed up every day in these dark blue suits. Uh, Garrison, the prosecutor, just walked all over them. A brilliant lawyer. Uh, easily, the, I've been around courts all of my life. I'm not a young person. That was easily the best performance I have ever seen. I've seen great lawyers in action. Mm-hmm. Jerry Spence, Philip Corboy, Bill Colson, some of America's great trial lawyers. Garrison's performance in that case was at absolute concert level. He was a brilliant prosecutor. 
before he even started on that case. Then he spent six months immersing himself in the life of Mike Tyson, and he was ready for anything that came his way. You know, Lester, I recall vividly uh, visiting with Mark and him talking about the fact that he felt that much of his defense, uh, or much of his prosecution, rather, of, uh, of Mike Tyson, rested upon the fact that he ingratiated himself with the jury. That he was the he was the boy next door to the jury. Oh, you live in you live in Broad Ripple. You ever been to the Dairy Queen in Broad Ripple? That right. that that Garrison had a way of of almost immediately taking this strutting peacock from Washington D.C., Vincent Fuller, and creating him uh, in the role of being every bit as much an enemy as Mike Tyson was. That's exactly what he did. There were times when I thought he was going to climb into the jury box and sit on their laps. The guy was unbelievable. <laughs> and he, he, one day we came in, the judge was late getting on the bench, and there was Garrison right in front of Tyson's lawyers schmoozing the jury, talking about what Bobby Knight had done the night before with the Hoosier basketball team. And those lawyers from Washington, they were not sure who Bobby Knight was. They thought it might have been a judge down the hall. They knew nothing that Garrison was talking about. They couldn't possibly keep up with him. But there there were a hundred things like that in that trial. As we watch the NCAA tournament uh, unfold once again in the form of uh, March Madness, and uh, CBS paying $700 bucks for the rights to uh, the Final Four. And by the way, as you know, bleeding from all pores. And anxious to uh, opt out, which means that uh, I would presume the tournament will wind up in the hands of uh, ESPN and ABC. That being said, is there a greater argument on God's earth for paying athletes than the revenues derived by the NC2A for March Madness? No, it's one of the great injustices that these kids are not paid for what they do. They are the ones who produce the audience. There's no question they are the ones who produce the revenue. Instead of paying the players, we pay the coaches way too much money. We pay athletic directors way too much money. Why does the NCAA get away with this? Just because it can't. They have a monopoly. If you are an elite basketball player, you have one place to go. That's NCAA Division One basketball. Mm-hmm. And they get away with this. Ch- Chet, they don't even take care of these kids when they're injured. We have the... No. A player gets a concussion. He needs some sophisticated medical care. They don't get it. They just don't get it. They, they they treat these kids badly on money, on health, on medicine, and in many of the universities on academics. You know, from that uh, perspective, the thing that's really frightening, Lester, is this didn't begin last Tuesday. This has been going on since 1910. <laughs> <laughs> they had they had the idea at the beginning, and it just they've just been refining it ever since. There's no question about it. There are now, a guy comes to play basketball or football, maybe he really wants the free college education. He's not going to be in the NBA. He's not going to be in the NFL, like 90% of college athletes. And they say, well, you better major in this. Don't take engineering or philosophy or English or something you're interested in. Take what we tell you to take because that'll be easy and we can keep you eligible. You know, that, uh, that's, that's what really disturbs me about college athletics. Think about Robert Smith when he was at Ohio State. Oh. Dropping out of college football because, because he wanted to take lab courses in pre-med and the coaches told him, we won't let you do it. No, they were afraid that his academics would interfere with his football. He was a great running back, a brilliant guy, probably would have been a great doctor, and and that's what happens to him. My friend uh, Ben Gordon, Carmelo Anthony, you're on to something very engaging. Here are a couple of uh, young NBA stallions making a great deal of money. How badly have they been ripped off? 
There's a financial manager in California by the name of Larry Harmon. He signed up both of these guys as clients. And apparently in 2006, he thought he had some kind of real estate bonanza on his hands. So he, quote unquote, borrowed a million dollars from Ben Gordon. He borrowed a million six from Carmelo Anthony and put it into this real estate deal. And now, of course, it's all gone. Both of these guys have had to sue to get their money. Ben Gordon has a judgment against this financial manager. This, and, and the guy will not pay it. It, it is, he not only took their money, he now somehow feels righteous about it. But if he won't pay the money, what do you do from a legal standpoint if you're Ben Gordon? Well, Gordon has a good lawyer uh, in Chicago here, a guy named George Spellmeyer. They're going to collect it the hard way. They're going to issue citations and garnishments, and they will make Harmon's life miserable as they extract this money from him dollar for dollar. With interest now, it's up to a million five. So it, Harmon is going to notice this. I'm not sure how many clients he has. I'm still working on it, but he's going to have a difficult time ahead of him. Now, if I told you over the years that uh, inch for inch, pound for pound, the two biggest uh, scoundrels in terms of dealing with athletes that uh, I can recall would be, number one, Tom Collins, who absolutely uh, raped Kareem Abdul-Jabbar financially, just raped the guy. Kareem, of course, bright enough to uh, reinvent, redevelop himself, become a millionaire once again. And Alan Eagleson, the notorious, notorious head of the NHLPA, who is still a hero in many people's eyes because he put together that Canada-Russia series back in 72 that Canada won on the overtime goal by Henderson. I'm in total agreement with you, Chet. Collins was the worst of all agents and all financial managers. Alan Eagleson is easily the greatest fraud in the history of sports. It just takes your breath away when you see (laughs) what he did. He's the only individual ever removed from a Hall of Fame for misconduct. And the journalist who caught him, Russ Conway, an authentic hero from Lawrence, Massachusetts, he took Eagleson's place in the Hockey Hall of Fame. I just love that part of this story. That is magnificent, my friend. Uh, uh, the Ricketts family here in town, uh, their proclamation that Jim Hendry will ultimately be the uh, uh, the great determiner as to uh, whether or not uh, Lou Pinello will be uh, uh, retained after 2010. Uh, and as we speak, uh, you know, Cub fans are probably growling if they got... Uh, Look on opening day, and Lou is tired, Lou is misplaced, Lou, Lou has <laughs> lost his energy, all the, all the traditional uh, cliches. Lester, I don't buy for a minute that this is Henry's hire or fire. I, I don't either. I think the Ricketts family understands what you must say to conform to the protocols and to the rules, the unwritten rules in the sports industry. They can't say, we are going to personally fire the manager, we have our general manager. They're trying to stay you know, out of controversy, and this is what you have to say to do it. So, But at the end of the year, depending on what Pinella achieves this year, the Ricketts family will decide where he's going to be next year. In the case of uh, the Ricketts family, do you get the feeling, as I do right now, that, boy, it was all peaches and cream when it was uh, in the uh, negotiating process, but now that they have this ball club, they've woken up to a very harsh reality regarding renovation of Wrigley Field, regarding their payroll, and that maybe, just maybe, they're thinking to themselves, it would have been a hell of a lot more fun to, to, just to stay in Omaha, Nebraska, and not be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. Uh, I think some of the things they thought were going to be easy to do, get some money to remodel Mesa, get some money to remodel Wrigley Field, are not so easy. The the uh, now Major League Baseball has taken over the tax situation in Mesa. The Toyota sign is not going to go up right away. 
in Wrigley Field, and some of these things are starting to go wrong. As a fan, I am, I remain encouraged by the fact that they say they will have the money and the flexibility to make a move if necessary, in the middle of the season. Something under Tribune Company was impossible. So maybe that will somehow bail them out of here, but that's a, that's maybe not quite enough. In, in the case of building a brand-new facility in Mesa and trying to tax all other major league teams, did they really, I mean, <laughs> how pretty... stupid can you be to think that Jerry Reinsdorf is going to sign off on something like that? They must have thought they could slip that through when nobody was looking. But I think Reinsdorf, when it comes to money and taxes, has about as close to a laser as anybody in all of sports. So it didn't get by him. You know, uh, we're talking about, for Jerry Reinsdorf, a very, very long tenure. My gosh, he bought the ball club with uh, Eddie Einhorn back in uh, 1981. So for all practical purposes, three decades of uh, Reinsdorf-driven baseball in Chicago. If you had to grade him... A, B, C, D, incomplete. How would you grade the tenure of Jerry Reinsdorf? Uh, I would give him probably a low B. Um, I view him as responsible for the collusion conspiracy uh, in the mid-90s in which he and his fellow owners were caught and had to pay $400 million. I didn't like what he did to the economy of baseball with the Albert Bell signing in which he changed the entire salary structure because he was angry about uh, the union and about his fellow owners. Uh, He he certainly has longevity. He won the World Series in 2005. He is a man who takes great care of his employees. You and I know that from friends of ours who have worked there. So there's some really good things about him. At the same time, he has this hard commercial edge to him that I think sometimes has caused difficulty. You know, Lester, back in the early 80s, as you recall, when uh, Eddie and Jerry bought the ball club, there wasn't a TV show in town that didn't feature Jerry Reinsdorf. These guys were the most uh, media-crazed individuals you could ever hope to meet. Something occurred with Reinsdorf. I think I think it probably translate to, translates to a time when uh, Hawk Harrelson fired Tony LaRusso. You know, the media was all over Hawk and all over Jerry. Because really, ever since that time, and we're going back almost, you know, 25 years, yep. Jerry has been zealously guarded when it comes to the press. Yeah, he really, a, he really does not like the press. He does not like the press. There was testimony in a court case. Remember when the secretary that he had died after some surgery that went wrong at yeah, the Chicago Berto. Hospital? Berto. When in that trial, there was testimony about Sherry Berto and Jerry Reinsdorf calling people names who worked in the media. They had a whole series of nasty language that they used for any of us in the media. That came out in open court. I I think that was accurate. I'm not sure what prompted this. It easily could have been the LaRusa firing and the reaction to that. But there's whenever you have access to Jerry Reinsdorf as a journalist, it's on his terms and his terms only, and it's been that way now for a long time. National Football League and the players. Any reason to believe, as we speak right now, that there will be football in 2011? None. The lockout's going to start uh, about 11 months from now. I don't have any doubt about it. The, the the owners and Commissioner Goodell are lining up everything just the way the National Hockey League did, only more so for a long lockout. I don't think there will be training camps in that summer. Maybe somehow cooler heads prevail and they make a deal. But right now, a lockout that could be a good chunk of the season, if not all of it. Lester, how could television networks be silly enough (laughs) 
And I'm thinking about a guy like Dick Ebersol, who just violently overbid for the Olympics, for example, and also you know put together a gem called the XFL. And you wonder how Dick Ebersol stays in his position with NBC. But why would the television networks sign off on deals with the NFL that will pay them their their full and complete uh, television revenue in 2011, whether there's football or not, which puts, in, in my opinion, the the NFLPA in a situation where they they, they can't win. I mean, they're, they're, they're DOA right now. They, they, their leverage is slowly disappearing. There's no question about it. Why the networks made those deals, I have no idea. They had to be under enormous pressure from the NFL. The NFL is taking a very hard stand with the networks, just like they are now going to take a very hard stand with the players. They really want a different structure. Here they have thrived. Here they have become moguls, billionaires under this system. It's not enough. They want to make it better for themselves. Hey, I'm once again, he is Lester Munson, legal analyst, ESPN. I'm Chet Kopic. This has been Sports Court, where you get info that very simply you just don't get anywhere else. Brought to you by our great friends at American Taxi. We'll catch you in seven days. So long, everybody.